Before we read from 1 Peter, let me tell you about something that happened not long before 1 Peter was written. It happened in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ had been crucified. Three days later, his followers met him, risen from the dead. He remained with them for a period of 40 days, then he returned to heaven. And not long after that, Acts chapter 2 tells us God's Holy Spirit came and filled those followers of Jesus. And the result was they began to tell others about Jesus. Now it hadn't been long since Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. The city was still full of powerful, bitter enemies of Jesus. And many of those enemies belonged to the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish ruling council. And Acts chapter 5 tells us, when the disciples started to proclaim that Jesus was the risen Savior, Jesus' enemies got angry. They ordered the disciples to stop. And when the disciples didn't stop, the Sanhedrin had them flogged. Historians tell us what was involved in a flogging at that time. It involved 39 lashes on the back and chest. The lashes were given with a whip made out of three leather straps. A whipping like that could kill someone. And if it didn't kill them, it left them not very far from dead. So at the end of this flogging, Jesus' followers would have been a physical mess. They would have been seriously weak from loss of blood. And that makes what we are told next seem very hard to understand. Acts chapter 5 verse 41 says about these battered, bloody followers of Jesus. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. In the context, the name there can only mean the name of Jesus. That's the name they had been proclaiming in Jerusalem. That's not the difficult bit. The bit that is very hard to understand for us is why these people would rejoice because they suffered for the name of Jesus. We understand what it means to trust in Jesus. We get the point about people loving Jesus and obeying Jesus. But rejoicing because they suffered for the name of Jesus? That's a lot harder for us to understand. But as we turn to 1 Peter, we're going to get some help understanding it. The Apostle Peter was one of those followers of Jesus we've just heard about. And what we're about to read is Peter's explanation of what we are told in the book of Acts. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1220. And in the larger print Bibles, 1891. First Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice 
inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is God's word. And this passage is about fire in God's house. We'll get to the God's house part later. The fire comes right away in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. At least some of these Christians are going through a fiery ordeal, or a fiery trial, we might call it. They're feeling some intense heat in their lives. Things are getting uncomfortable for these people because of their Christian commitment. Peter says... Don't be surprised by that. Don't think it's strange. And if the first readers of this letter needed to hear that, how much more do you and I need to hear it? I heard just last week about a man who professed to be a Christian. He was going through an uncomfortable time in his life. It wasn't a good time. He was feeling some heat in his life. And he prayed about it for a while, but the heat didn't go away. Things didn't get better. So that man gave up on Christianity. When people from his church went to see him, he said, look, I prayed about it. I prayed sincerely and repeatedly about it, and God didn't fix it for me. He didn't take the heat away. He didn't sort out what was making me uncomfortable. So I'm finished with God. As far as that man was concerned, going through a fiery ordeal as a Christian was surprising. He considered it very strange. So strange that he bailed out on Christianity. And in some church circles, people are even taught that fiery trials are strange and surprising for Christians. They're led to believe the Christian life will be free of fiery ordeals. They're told that God will fireproof their lives. And when people make a commitment to Jesus as a response to that kind of teaching, then they're signing up for a heat-free Christian life. 
They're not expecting trials or discomfort. So they're shocked and bewildered when trials come. But here in our passage, Peter wants to prepare us for reality. He wants us to know the truth about the Christian life. When you and I put our faith in Jesus, we are wonderfully forgiven of our sin. Jesus brings us to God. We are reconciled to our Creator. We're accepted as sons and daughters. We become heirs to an eternal, incorruptible inheritance. And we are to expect some discomfort here and now because of our commitment to Jesus. Jesus himself taught that. We read it earlier in John chapter 15. He taught it in other places. And Peter here repeats Jesus' teaching. We're not to think discomfort is strange. And we're to realize why this fire has come into our lives. It has come, verse 12 says, to test us. What exactly is being tested? What's being tested is the reality of our commitment to Christ. The genuineness of our faith in him. Back in chapter 1, Peter put it like this. Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says, faith in Jesus is worth infinitely more than gold. And fiery trials show the genuineness of our faith. They're not a sign God has abandoned us. They show that we're his. Because our faith lasts, even in the fire. That was chapter 1. Here in chapter 4, Peter returns to the same point, and he develops it for us. He opens it up for us. He tells us, suffering for our commitment to Christ reveals our union with Christ. In verse 12, we're told, don't be surprised at fiery ordeals, but, verse 13 Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. There's a progression in this verse from rejoicing at the start of the verse to super rejoicing at the end of the verse. Peter says we have joy now, knowing we will be overjoyed later. But what makes us rejoice now, in the present? It's the knowledge that as we go through fiery ordeals, we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. If you think about Jesus' life, the path of his life led through suffering to glory. And if you and I belong to him, our lives will follow the same path to some degree. How did Jesus respond when his path took him into the midst of suffering? Well, he didn't pray a magic prayer that made it all go away. 
He did pray, but his prayers were not the type of prayer that goes, fix this God or I'm done with you. Those are not the prayers of a genuinely committed person. A person who's really committed to God. And Jesus' prayers weren't like that. On the night of his death, as Jesus prepared for the ultimate fiery ordeal, he said, Father, I don't like this fire. I'd like there to be another way, but I choose your way. Jesus prayed that prayer and he continued to trust and obey his Father. All the way through the fiery ordeal of the cross. And Peter wants you and me to see true union with Christ will mean to some degree suffering not. We will participate in his sufferings. His path led through suffering and ours will too. So there's a sense in which as we face suffering now, we rejoice. Not in the suffering itself, but in what it means. As you and I continue to trust and obey God in the fire, we know we belong to Jesus. Why? Because we are like him. We're in the same path he traveled, showing some of the same commitment that he showed. And that means there is also glory ahead. That's the second stage where rejoicing will give way to super rejoicing. Look again at verse 13. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When trials come, we rejoice now knowing we're on the same path as Jesus and knowing there's glory at the end of that path. And that means there's super rejoicing to come. Nobody loves suffering. But we can love the path that takes us through suffering. That's what Jesus did. Hebrews says about Jesus, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus did not like the path through suffering. But he loved where the path was going to take him in the end. And when you and I are united with Jesus, that will be our attitude too. So being a Christian is not about always clicking our heels together. It's not all about wearing a big grin all the time. But it does mean even in the fiery ordeals, even in the bits we really, really don't like, we can still like where this path is going to take us. We can still rejoice to know we're following in the steps of our Savior. And so as much as we might dislike the fire, we will never leave this path. And there's something else. As we walk in the steps of our Savior, we know the same Spirit of God that was with Him is with us too. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When we suffer because of our commitment to Christ, we can be sure of God's presence now. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah spoke about a servant of God who would come. Isaiah said, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. When we get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us Jesus was that promised servant of God. At his baptism, we're told, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and alighted on Jesus. And throughout their accounts of Jesus' life, the Gospel writers often speak about Jesus being empowered by the Spirit of God. One commentator sums up what the Gospels tell us about Jesus' reliance on the Spirit. The ministry of Jesus in word and deed was carried forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. In everything he did, Jesus knew in him a mighty force working that was beyond himself. Jesus lived and moved in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And here Peter says to you and me, if we're Christians... When we suffer for our commitment to Christ, we can take it as confirmation of our union with Christ. And that means the same spirit of glory and of God that rested on Jesus rests on us too. So we must never think that God would send us through a fiery ordeal with less resources than Jesus had. Peter says to us, you are blessed with the same resources. You also have with you a power that is beyond you. Earlier we said it's wrong to expect the Christian life to be free from heat and discomfort. But here we're told, in our heat and discomfort, we can expect the supernatural sustaining power of God's Spirit. We're promised the Spirit rests on us just as he rested on Jesus Christ. At this point, Peter knows he needs to clarify something for us. He needs to make sure we understand what we're talking about does not apply to all suffering. It only applies to suffering for our commitment to Christ. Look at verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Being a meddler means getting involved in things that are none of our business. Trying to put other people to rights. Peter says that's not the kind of stuff Christians should be suffering for. Juan Sanchez says, Christians face the temptation to identify the consequences of our sin as Christian suffering. If you steal and are caught, you cannot argue that you are suffering unjustly. If I am known as someone who continually does wrong or meddles in the business of others, I cannot complain when I am ostracized. That is not persecution. Suffering for your sins does not prove your allegiance to Christ. 
So if I miss out on a promotion at work because I'm a lazy, untrustworthy worker, I can't call it a fiery ordeal. It's just what I deserve. If I lose friends because I'm a gossip or because I have a sharp tongue, or if I get in financial trouble because I waste my money, none of that counts as a fiery ordeal. Several times in the past I've met Christians who chose to buy homes that were way beyond their means. And when they couldn't pay the mortgage, they wanted the church to hold special prayer meetings, asking God to provide the funds. But when our greed gets us into trouble, when any sin gets us into trouble, that is not participating in the sufferings of Christ. It's not a sign of our union with Christ. It's not something to rejoice in. It's something to be ashamed of. And when we're in those situations, the way forward is not to count on God's power to bring us through it. The way forward is to repent of my sin and change the direction of my life. However, verse 16 If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The word Christian simply means follower of Christ. And often people will use that name to mock us or to belittle us. Peter says, don't be ashamed of that title. They may mock you with it. But you wear the name proudly. I can remember as a teenager working in a butcher's and being asked one day right in the middle of the shop by the biggest, roughest guy there, are you a Christian? And I remember vividly going bright red. I remember my throat turning to sandpaper. And I just about managed to croak, yes, I am. (laughs) Why was that so hard? It was hard because I thought he would make fun of me ever after. And I didn't want to bear that shame. Now, as it happened, he didn't do that. In fact, all he said was, oh, well, there are worse things. And then he walked away. I got off pretty lightly. But sometimes it can seem so hard just to own up to the name Christian. Peter knows that very well. If you know Peter's story, there was a time when he denied that he knew Christ. But Peter says out of his own experience, don't be ashamed of that name. It's the best name. There's no greater honor and privilege than to be a Christian. And if you get made fun of because of that name, or if even worse things happen to you, count it an honor to suffer for such an honorable name. Earlier we looked at an unusual statement from the book of Acts. You remember after telling us those early Christians were being beaten within an inch of their life, 
Peter told us. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Maybe now we're able to understand that verse a little bit better. Why did those early Christians count it an honor to suffer for the name of Christ? Because it proved they belonged to Christ. It was a sign of their union with Christ. It meant they were on the same path he traveled. It meant glory ahead. It meant God's presence now. And so they rejoiced to be disgraced in the eyes of this world. It meant they were honored in the eyes of God. You and I can have that same attitude when we suffer our own little doses of disgrace for the name of Jesus. When we go through our own fiery ordeals because of our allegiance to him. In verses 17 to 19, Peter says, Suffering for our commitment to Christ is much better than suffering for rejecting Christ. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Literally God's house. Back in chapter 2, Peter said to Christians, you are God's house. You are living stones, Peter said, being built together into a living temple of God. And here, Peter returns to that truth and he connects it to suffering. But why does he describe our suffering as judgment? That seems really out of place. Peter has just been saying that suffering comes Because of our faithfulness to God. That's the kind of suffering he's been talking about. But we associate the word judgment with God punishing sin. So what on earth does Peter mean when he says, it is time for judgment to begin with God's house? Well, the word judgment doesn't always refer to God bringing punishment on sin. Sometimes, it describes God making a judgment. In other words, it describes God drawing a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who are his people and those who are not his people. When Jesus spoke about this, he compared it to a shepherd separating out the sheep from the goats. Jesus said he puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. He makes a distinction. And then Jesus went on to say, after that initial process of making a judgment, some went to receive God's punishment and the rest received God's blessing. And that is the kind of judgment verse 17 is talking about. This is not about punishment. It's about what happens before punishment. This is about God sifting humanity. Separating them out into those who are his and those who are not. Peter says that process begins with those who profess to be Christians. Those who claim to be part of God's house. 
part of his living temple that we know as the church. Peter says what fiery ordeals do is they reveal who truly belongs to Christ and who doesn't. When suffering comes because of their allegiance to Christ, those who belong to him will persevere through it. But those who are not really his people, they will refuse to trust him in the trial. They will be ashamed to bear his name and they will turn away from him. Not just momentarily in a moment of weakness. They will turn away and they won't come back. They will be exposed as those who were never really committed to Christ at all. Well, then why did they come in the first place? Well, maybe some of them came for the social aspect of Christianity. They like the company and the care. Those are very attractive things. Maybe they came because they like the degree of prominence and respect you can receive in the church if you have certain kinds of abilities. Or maybe they came for the therapy you can get from church. After all, the message we have is a message of hope. It's a message about how valuable you are, how precious you are to God. It feels really good to be told those things. But it doesn't feel so good to be told those who follow Christ will also suffer. That doesn't sound very therapeutic. And so if we were never really in this because of love and commitment to Jesus, if we were only in it because we heard nice things that made us feel good, then we will turn away when fiery ordeals come. And here in verse 18, Peter says that's part of God making a judgment. He says that in verse 17 and 18. That's part of how God separates his people from those who aren't his people. That separating work starts among those who profess to belong to him. Those who appear to be living stones in his house. The fiery trial will test the genuineness of their commitment to Christ. None of us enjoy the prospect of trial by fire. It's not an enjoyable prospect. But suffering for our commitment to Christ is much, much better than suffering for rejecting Christ. Look how verses 17 and 18 go on. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When Peter says it's hard for the righteous to be saved, that doesn't mean God finds it hard to save them. It means we are saved through difficulty. We go through trials. We face opposition. It's hard. 
But Peter wants us to see, if we find those experiences hard, what will it be like for those who refuse to turn to Christ? How hard will it be for them when they miss God's salvation? The Bible says they will face eternal fire. They will be cut off from God forever. And so Don Carson sums up the point of these verses for us. This is a challenge to Peter's readers to follow through to the end, to persevere to the end. They are never to feel envious of the oppressors and persecutors. For those who reject the gospel will suffer much more than anything Christians have had to face in this life. So then, verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We know God uses fiery ordeals to separate his people from those who are not his people. So when those ordeals come, we don't walk away from God. We commit ourselves to him. We trust him. And we continue to do good, knowing that his Holy Spirit rests on us. Just as he rested on Jesus. We continue with God, knowing he will bring us through the trial. He will bring us at last to eternal joy in his presence. And as we go through our fiery ordeals, maybe, maybe like the first followers of Jesus, we can even rejoice now. Because we have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to remember the path Jesus traveled to open up glory for us. We're going to gather around this table, which reminds us of Jesus' fiery ordeal on the cross. But before we do that, our next song helps us to begin to rejoice in our union with Jesus. It reminds us, Christ is mine forevermore.